0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me once again to the epistle of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this morning, we will be considering the first 18 verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do indeed speak to us through the Scriptures. Your Word It's God-breathed. It's inspired. It's holy. It's without error. It's without capability of error. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for these wonderful truths. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit would open our hearts and our understanding. Give us great joy in the truth that you have in this passage for us today. Teach us, Lord Jesus, we pray, and draw us closer to yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the holy word of God written for you and for me today. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruits, Or who tends a flock, and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, That he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, it is a great thing. Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved in Christ, congregation of the Lord, lives are changed when the Holy Spirit brings conviction to our hearts. When he brings transformation to our minds and reformation to how we live in accordance with his word. Has this been true for you as you've been considering more of the word from our Lord? More of the scriptures, even more of what we considered last week in the truth that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. One of the Apostle Paul's points to the saints in Corinth was that they needed to be mindful of and and humble about what they thought they knew. For running forward headstrong in life, running forward with arrogant assumptions in the course of walking with others in relationship isn't pleasing to God. And it can cause avoidable problems and pain. And yet instead of walking in blind arrogance, Paul really pressed that we must rather walk in love with eyes wide open. For as conceited knowledge puffs up, true love builds up. As conceited knowledge puffs up, true love builds up. And as true love, really as the love of Christ, is at work in and through us, it helps us to be more conscious and careful with our words and our actions toward one another. Lawful liberty that Jesus has given us must be used with love and wisdom and with a view of not harming weaker brethren, Paul has taught us. And just because we can do something, just because it's not sinful in the sight of God, doesn't mean that it's wise or right to do it, considering the situation we're in and the conscience of a brother or sister. Paul taught us that we need to be mindful of this. Knowing this, it, would be, it wouldn't it would be right for a stronger brother to go to a weaker brother and to try to shame them or to manipulate him into going against his conscience and joining in so that we can go ahead and do whatever we're free to do and whatever we want to do, whatever. It was this kind of thing that led to the Corinthians' question of what they should do regarding food offered to idols. And yet Paul warned, Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. My friends, we must not use liberty to cause our brethren to sin. And further, Paul made it clear that when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you need to be aware that you also sin against Christ. Again, we, we are to build up our brethren in love, encouraging them in their pursuit of holiness not walk them to the cliff of sin. And therefore, Paul led by example in in practicing what he preached. He said he wouldn't eat meat, again, if it caused his brother to stumble. But now he goes on in today's text to teach more about liberty and conscience. He doesn't leave that behind. Here's another facet. He's even going to show us his pattern, his example in this very thing. As he demonstrated wisdom and restraint at the end of chapter 8, Paul now gives us his pattern of self-denial in chapter 9. And so let's look at Paul's rights and defense in verses 1 through 12, as well as secondly, his pattern of self-denial in verses 13 through 18. But look at how he begins, and we're going to see a series of rhetorical questions here, right? He asks, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You know, as we've seen at least twice before in this epistle, Paul not only had opponents and naysayers outside of the church, But many on the inside of the Corinthian congregation also sought to discourage him and to discredit him. Many false brethren attacked his character and they sought to trash his reputation amongst the other saints in the body. We need to remember that one of Satan's initial tactics to cut the sheep off from their pastor is to get them to stop listening to him. Once they stop listening to their pastor, even once they stop listening to their elders, it's easier to give them a counterfeit. It's easier to lure them down the path that leads to sin and death. And he tries and uses that tactic all the time. Many in the body question Paul's apostolic mission and authority. And Paul defended himself on different matters and provided clarity about the authenticity of his call. He provided clarity about his love and the sincerity of his service to them. Let's look at these other two accounts briefly. If you look back with me at chapter 2, chapter 2, the first five verses there, we read in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my, my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul knew what they were looking for, if you remember. He knew that they were looking for the celebrity pastor. He knew that they were looking for the man who's sharp and well spoken and he could orate like none other. But yet Paul said, I'm not coming with flash to impress you on the surface. I'm coming with the power of God, with the truth of Christ and the gospel to penetrate right to your hearts. For that's what you need. And in chapter 4, the first. Four verses there. He said, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I know of nothing against myself yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. And so we've seen time and again, right? Chapter 2, chapter 4, here now in chapter 9, again, all is on the defense, needing to clarify, needing to make crystal clear what his credentials are, what his intentions are, and indeed the Lord's work and the fruit of his work in their midst. But notice the four rhetorical questions in verse 1 of chapter 9. Indeed, all of which are rightly answered, yes. Paul was willing to forego some of his rights as he stated in the end of chapter 8. And the questions in verse 1 tell us that some of the saints in Corinth likely defended their own behavior and conduct by questioning Paul's authority and being critical of his behavior. Were they not his work in the Lord? Absolutely, they were. The evidence of Paul's ministry among them was the Corinthian church itself that God had raised up through his labors. Was he not an apostle? Yes, he was. Called by Christ. Was he not free? Yes, he was. But further, Others didn't see him as an apostle. Surely the Corinthians would, he said. For why? For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord, he said. In addition to these other things that he's pointing out, he's he's making the point and driving it home that their conversion through his ministry was a confirmation of his mission from God. Just look within the body. Look within yourself, beloved, in the Corinthian church. Pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see these things. It's, it's clear of the Lord's work and through his ministry. But so Paul goes on to defend his right as an apostle, as well as teaches us about the right of ministers to be supported by the church. And he does so by asking ten more questions. Maybe thinking, whoa, that's a lot of questions, Pastor. Hang on. They're good. They're rich. They're meaty. They're important. They're glorious. Look at verse 3 with me. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? As do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Did they have the right to be provided with food and drink? Absolutely they did. Remember Paul's words to Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We see that the matter of apostolic rights wasn't unique to Corinth. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, we read, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Paul knew, he recognized, he was crystal clear, that they had rights as apostles, sent by Christ to the people as their pastors, as their shepherds, serving Christ in them. So they could have made demands, but they didn't in that case, in Thessalonica. How did they come among them? They were gentle. They were like a nurturing and nourishing mother to her children. Did the apostles have the right to take their own wives along with them? in their time with the churches. Yes, they did. Though Paul was single at the time, Peter was married. We see that in Matthew eight fourteen, as were other apostles. And they took such liberty using their rights to bring their wives along. And now note how Paul's pointing this out speaks against those who claim the necessity for clerical celibacy. Or pastoral celibacy? No, that's not true. We see this by example as Paul makes this known. Did the apostles have the right to refrain from working another job while ministering to the saints? Yes. Paul had the right to receive support from the Corinthian church, and yet Paul didn't use this right as he stayed with Priscilla and Aquila and worked as a tent maker while he ministered to the saints there. We see that in Acts chapter 18, verse 3. And he goes on to use military and agricultural examples in verse 7 to support his claim of the right he had. But this is where we get the the term and the understanding that's often used when a minister may have another job or he may be in part-time ministry as a pastor where he has a tent-making business. This is where we get that term from, as Paul worked as a tent-maker with Priscilla and Aquila as he served there. But look at verse 7 in these military and agricultural examples he gives to support the claim of the right he had. He asks more questions. Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? Really, the answer is no one, or very, or at the very least, maybe not many. Right? Then Paul goes on in verse 8 to point out that what he is saying isn't his opinion, but rather it's from God's Old Testament law. So again, remember, he's on the defense. He's providing his defense for his apostleship and and these things that he's saying here. And he's saying, but don't just think it's my opinion. Look at God's word. Look at the law that you are subject to, O Corinthians. And he quotes Deuteronomy 25, verse 4 here at the beginning of 9a. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now why was the farmer not to muzzle the ox? What was the purpose of that? What was the point of that? Well, the ox would pull the machine behind him, and the chaff would be blown away, but the heads of grain would fall to the ground, and the oxen would eat some of the material grain as... They were working to produce what was then gathered. And yet, what was the meaning of this law? Paul points out, was it truly about oxen? Was it truly about muzzling the physical animals that tread the grain? In other words, putting a muzzle, you know what that is, children, right? A muzzle is is the thing you put around the mouth and attaches around the head. So that they can't open the mouth. Sometimes you put a muzzle on dogs, right? So that they won't bite or attack others. And so what would you what would you do? Muzzle the ox? Well, if you muzzled the ox, he wouldn't be able to eat. He wouldn't be able to do what otherwise he would do. Was it truly about oxen? Look at verse nine B. Is oxen God's concern is is oxen what God is concerned about. Or does he say it all together? For our sakes. For our sakes. No doubt it this is written. That he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope. Should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you. Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? You see the scene, right? Those who labor are also those who reap some of the fruit of the labor. Just as the farmer who plows does so in hope and expectation of a fruitful reward and harvest. Paul makes the point that he has shown to them spiritual things. And therefore, how great it was then to be rewarded with temporal, material things for the care of his body. Again, Paul goes to Scripture to demonstrate that he had the right to be provided for and supported by the church. Not that Paul would ever lord it over them. We see that very clearly here in his servant's heart. But indeed, he had the right to partake of that. I encourage you, beloved, to continue to love and support and care for your minister well. And I can tell you, without a shadow of a doubt, and not even thinking a second about it, that you haven't muzzled me while I tread the grain, but have rather greatly encouraged me and my family and gospel ministry to you, as well as to those who are outside of heritage. And so encourage other brothers and sisters and other faithful churches to do the same with theirs. And yet what did Paul say was true in, in what he did with that right for material support? He put it aside. He laid it down. As Paul shifts into giving New Testament support for his argument, he wanted the Corinthians to see and to know his pattern of self-denial and not using the right and the liberty that he had and as he does so, be thinking and connecting to what he was talking about in chapter 8. It's all fluid and connected. Look at verse 12b. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ and its going forth unhindered was and is paramount. It was paramount in Corinth. It was paramount in all of the churches that Paul ministered to, as well as the other apostles. It's paramount today. It's paramount today that the gospel goes forth unhindered to great importance. Paul did whatever it took to support the continued movement of the gospel, the continued proclamation of the gospel, and in the context of the Corinthian church, Paul determined it to be wise to lay that right aside for that support. We'll consider more of that in a moment. But we also see Paul's pattern of self-denial then. He, he puts forth his rights and his defense, but now he says, look at what I've done. Look at my pattern." As Paul rounds off his Old Testament evidence by quoting Leviticus chapter 6, verses 16 and 26, he references the practice of the priests, and he says this in verse 13. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings at the altar. And beloved Jesus has also spoken to the matter. he mentions this in verse 14. even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now what was Paul talking about here what what example was he thinking? what instruction from Christ was he having in mind as he said this? Well Jesus taught this when he sent out the twelve in Matthew chapter 10. Verses 9 and 10. Matthew chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. We read, beginning in verse 9, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a a worker is worthy of his food. And so the foundational, the, the scriptural support was strong for Paul. Even here, these words of Christ that we've just considered. But he laid that aside. He laid that right aside to minister to Corinth. He says in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 9, But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. All right, so, He's saying, I I haven't used these things, I've laid it aside, and by the way, if any of you think about me bringing it up, as me trying to say, ah, so so now you should either have pity on me, or now I'm telling you this is what I think needs to be done to me. He's like, no, that's not it either. Nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting for Now as Paul did receive support in Philippi for his ministry there, and that is true, we see that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. What's going on here? Again, remember the worldliness of Corinth that he's presented all along. The Corinthians had a worldly view of many things, including success. They had a worldly view of money and power as the church assessed the leaders and the teachers and the preachers in their day. Traveling teachers were assessed in part by how much money they could take in. What was their wealth? Were they bringing in the dollar signs? Even exponentially, that was one of their concerns and one of the check boxes they sought to consider. And if you think about it, this Corinthian mindset is still alive and well today in how people look at and support different people like televangelists and popular conference speakers today, isn't it? Do they bring the crowds? Do they bring in the money? Do they put on a good show? If so, they must be good. Those things are true. They must be good is a a big mindset. Forget about, is the pure gospel going forth? Are lives being changed by Christ through that man's ministry? Is Christ being preached in the fullness and beauty of his person and work? Is the whole counsel of God sounding in the people's ears and being applied in their hearts and being evident in their lives? Is good fruit evident in the church? And so, because this was true in Corinth, Paul says here and, and demonstrates by example that. He wanted to stay as far away from that worldly and fallen view that Corinth had adopted of what successful ministry is and what it looks like. Paul wasn't like those traveling teachers who put on a show with pomp and pizzazz, or even, as he said before, had it all together and looked nice and shiny, who pushed that truthfulness and success in ministry should be gauged and measured by such a show. Paul wanted nothing to do with it. He was above reproach in his ministry and this is why he was so focused on not receiving material support from the saints in Corinth. He wanted to challenge their view and to make sure that they weren't assessing him like the other teachers of the day. For clearly their assessment would be different their critiques, their harsh criticisms made that clear. In Second Corinthians chapter two, verse seventeen, we read this. Paul said, For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. My friends, Paul wasn't a peddler. He didn't proclaim Christ to make a prophet for his benefit, for his exaltation, so that he could rightly be put on that pedestal, like they were putting him in Apollos, and Cephas, and their divisions. No, no. He was a valiant preacher who couldn't but preach Christ and the gospel. To the people. And he says this so wonderfully in verse 16. Sit here and and just bathe and meditate on this wonderful proclamation in verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Beloved, Paul was a faithful servant of Christ and a steward. He was a man with spirit wrought fire in his belly to preach and to proclaim Christ in him crucified. Woe to me if, if I don't preach the gospel, Paul exclaimed. Let me be accursed if I don't do that because this is my calling. I preach it out of zeal, out of call, out of necessity because that is what God has for me. Oh, beloved, may every minister of the gospel have this same fire and say the same woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. May we not give you fluff. May we not try to fill your bellies with lies or deceive you. May we, with great fire and zeal, give you Jesus. For he is who you need in every way. Like Paul, we are called to be faithful stewards. We have a ministry of stewardship of what we have been given, and therefore we must proclaim Jesus boldly in your ears and also to the world. And what was Paul's reward, wonderfully, in verse 18? What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel... I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul did whatever it took to protect that message, to keep Christ and the people's view of Christ as pure and glorious. Paul wasn't on display. He wanted to make sure that people saw Jesus on this side. And so know that it was common in Corinth. But sadly, and as it was common in Corinth, it sadly isn't uncommon today for a minister to receive harsh criticisms from people he serves, though he is diligent and faithful among them. He may receive worse treatment from a congregation when he expected the best from them. Like Paul, he may find himself having to defend his ministry. But praise God that that hasn't happened here at Heritage. But therefore, we all need to be on guard against the standards of the world infiltrating the church and and affecting how you assess life and success of ministry in the church. And even more specifically, the assessment of success of ministers in ministry. May the lens by which you look be free of the success syndrome of the world, and rather always be grounded and shaped by the godly view that is declared in God's Word. May God's Word be your guide. Yes, it is right for ministers to be evaluated. But on what basis? According to what standard? That standard must be the Word of God. But also see the rights and the liberties that Paul clearly had here, but also see how Paul, in love and, and with a desire to build up the church, laid them aside so that he could more effectively minister to and serve the specific needs in Corinth, being above reproach. This was Paul saying, because of what I know, I'll do this so I can encourage and build you up. And this was seen in action in fruitful gospel ministry. But finally also, what a, What a wonderful testimony of Paul we see here. And what a testimony he is of Christ. Even as we consider what Christ did, as Jesus set aside his glory to condescend, as he emptied himself, as he was made like his brethren, to be with his sinful, often critical people, to faithfully and effectively serve and minister to us as our Savior, as our Lord, as our chief example, to save us and and to transform us by His Spirit wonderfully. Many doubted and rejected His claims of the authenticity of His offices and authority, but the truth was revealed. The truth was made known even in his person, his work, the faithful testimony of his apostles. How wonderful Jesus is, beloved. Oh, how wonderful he is. Oh, the marvelous and glorious gospel of Christ, the the glorious gospel and good news to dead sinners who are enmity and enemies of Christ. But yet those who are his, those whom he loves, his elect, those who he redeems and, and, and brings from, from death to life, the, such the good news of life in Christ. All praise be to our Savior forever and ever. The one that Paul pointed to the one who Paul served, and the one who Paul desires to impress to the Corinthians and to us today. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray together.